You're listening to Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yeh. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here to discuss our November 2022 book club pick, Year of the Tiger in Activist Life, um, a memoir by Alice Wong, the founder and director of the Disability Visibility Project. But before we get to our discussion of the book, um, Rira, how are you doing? How are your holidays going? Um, it was fine. <laughs> Surprisingly, <laughs> it was it was fine. How about you? Um, it was pretty good. As always, I had to go to multiple dinners just because, you know, my wife's family and my family here. Uh, we went to the local Brazilian barbecue for my family's Thanksgiving, and it was not a good experience. Um, oh, no. Yeah. You know what it is? I think it's just I'm, I've gotten too old for all-you-can-eat stuff. Um like it's not even that I don't eat enough. It's just you know I I, I want I want some better quality in my life these days. <laughs> and, and you what you're saying is you're bougie now. I'm bougie now, even though I you're don't bougie and you can't go back. <laughs> uh, I mean, like with my Thanksgiving, it was just my nuclear family. I didn't go to uh, Dan's family's Thanksgiving uh, mm. this past uh, this year, and. <laughs> What what happened was I walked in to the I walked into the house and immediately I had to cook. Oh, so no. yeah, I mean my mom was cooking as well, but I came in no greeting at all and was like check the kaibi in the <laughs> in the grill and I was like oh my god I'm you so know, stressed out. You know my family does the same thing to me when we go out to like steakhouses like these days you know like when you order like a big like a big steak they come. They serve a family style, and you're supposed to carve it yourself. And whenever the servers bring out the steak, my whole family looks to me to start carving. And I'm uh, like, my brother's right here. <laughs> Why don't you ask him? He's, he's staring at me, too. I'm like, oh. It's because you're the oldest. I guess. I guess. It's like it's- the oldest sibling uh, responsibility <laughs> to, like, take care of everything. So. I think it's just because, like, so the last few times, my, so my parents live overseas, so they come back, like, every once in a while, like, once or twice a year. And when they're back, my dad loves to, like, to fire up the grill, except he doesn't want to do the cooking. So I'm the one who's taking over, like, barbecue duties, grilling steaks, carving them, bringing them out. So now they're all used to me making food and serving food for them. And so they've all somehow magically forgotten how to, like, cut their own food. It's amazing. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I remember like the past few Thanksgivings, I would actually like bring side dishes because uh, my parents tried to force uh, like try to force Dan to like eat meat and stuff because Dan is pescatarian. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of Asian families are like, what do you mean? You're vegetarian. <laughs> you Like, what about what about meat? So um we're always worried that they don't have enough food for him. And uh, I used to bring sides. And then the one Thanksgiving when I didn't bring any sides, they were like, what happened to the yams? What happened to the mac and cheese? And I'm like, 
I do live in a tiny apartment just to like make two sides is is a lot of work. Right. And if you really wanted them, you still told me before I came here. That's true. That they just ex- they just expected <laughs> it. And I'm like, what? Uh, and of course, this year, they hadn't started cooking on the seafood. So after I had checked on the kaibi on the grill, <laughs> I immediately started cooking Dan's food because then I'm like, there's there's no food for Dan. So that was my Thanksgiving. It sounds stressful, but honestly, I'm so used to it that like it was just like routine clockwork. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. I I know I sounded like I was complaining about it, too. But, you know, it's just dealing with family expectations, just par for the course, especially during the holidays. And especially, especially if you're um, a child of immigrants, I guess. Yeah. I think it also helped that the World Cup is happening right now. So, like, oh, yeah. my dad was just like, oh, have you been watching soccer? And I was like, no, because <laughs> uh, they're happening at, like, the wee hours of 5 a.m. And I'm like, it's award season for K-pop. Listen, I have so I have only so many hours where I can stay awake. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt that Korea did pretty well today. So, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> I was just like. I was like, what? Like, we are the dreamers. Oh, my God. We like we actually won that game. I, I mean, Japan versus Korea, still a possibility in this World Cup, which will be pretty, pretty nuts in, in the city that we live in. I mean, didn't didn't Japan win as well? Yeah, Japan like, beat Spain. I was like, what the hell? Like, wow. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of twists in this World Cup. I mean, the Asian countries year. tend to do pretty well during like international competitions like in both baseball and soccer so it's they're never out of it which is fun it's fun to have like go asian moments in like international sports because then like, you're challenging everyone's assumptions and expectations about what an asian can be which is kind of a perfect segue to our book club pick for this month because it is a book that does challenge your assumptions your expectations and your you know preconceived notions about you know what you take for granted yeah yeah well uh to begin this book talk i'll just uh briefly go over the uh book jacket description and then we can jump in drawing on a collection of original essays previously published work conversations graphics photos commissioned art by disabled and asian american artists and more alice uses her unique voice and talent to share a raw and multifaceted impressionistic collage of her life as an Asian American disability rights activist, community builder, and media maker. From her love of good food and pop culture to her unwavering commitment to speaking out against often complex and overlooked ways inequalities and injustices play out in ableist society. So I think collage is a perfect way to describe this book. It... It's really tough to peg it as a memoir because so much of it is um, mixed media. There's like text messages. There's previous uh, interviews that she's done. There's transcripts. And um, of course, there's like also like comics and there's a lot of humor to it. So it's really hard to categorize this memoir, which uh, I really liked. Yeah, I mean, I was also like, I didn't know anything about the form of this book going in. So I had assumed that it would be just like a straight up memoir. Um, But like the moment she started 
you know, including transcripts from interviews, from podcasts. Like, it really, yeah, it, it felt like a multimedia experience. And I like that it was kind of like a scrapbook of her work in addition to like her reflections and her his, her story as well. Yeah. Um, so the book is split up into several sections. There's origins, activism, access, culture, storytelling, pandemic, and future. So lots of sections. And among these sections, there's like uh, subsections. So there is a lot to go through in this book. Um, but for those of you who are unfamiliar with uh, Alice Wong and her work, uh, she was born with muscular dystrophy, which hampered her ability to uh, walk by the time she was seven or eight years old. And um, yeah, like as she got older, she had to use a wheelchair and a ventilator. Yeah, like she is originally from Indiana. Her parents uh, were from were from Hong Kong and they immigrated to uh, the Midwest. And it's a time period where I'm assuming that a lot of um, not only prejudice against Asian Americans, but just uh, prejudice against disabled people was just 10 times fold. Yeah, I mean, Rira and I both grew up on <laughs> the coasts, which... Um, well, I mean, Riva, you did spend some time in the South as well before. Was this before That's all true. the Koreans came in to Atlanta? It was it was kind of like in the middle. So it was like when a lot of East Coast Asians were moving to Georgia and to the South because housing was cheaper. Mm. So uh, a lot of people that I met were actually like from around the same hometown. And it was just like, oh, all these restaurant owners, like I like... Like, my family knows them. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's something that I got out of this section was the sense of community in in these, at that point, more remote um, enclaves of Asian Americans. Um, you know, I grew up in San Gabriel, so I grew up amongst, like, Asian, being Asian out here wasn't exactly something that sets you apart. But, you know, growing up in places like the Midwest, like the South, you know, I can imagine your relationship to your identity is really different. But at the same time, the enclaves are just so much stronger. And the people that, you know, you meet, like, I I honestly don't remember the people that I went to Chinese school with, but it seems like Alice has, like, strong memories of, like, the people that were in community with her. So I'm not disabled myself, but I have two younger brothers who are um, autistic. One of them is uh, nonverbal and requires a lot of home assistance. So um, a lot of the... <laughs> The agonizing process of going through uh, like Medicaid and through like government care uh, to just get like just the smallest amount of hours. I like could definitely relate to that because they really just make you go through a lot of hoops. And and like my dad is pretty fluent in English and there's also me to help out with the paperwork so I'm just like, I, like the struggles that non-English speaking families must go through is um, it's just so rigged against them. And it's like so infuriating. But like one thing that I really enjoyed about this book was um, just like the context of Asian American communities, cultural tendency towards disabled people. 
Yeah. I mean, something that was really heartwarming is the fact that it seemed like Alice got a lot of support from her family, her parents and her sisters. And, you know, going in code, that's something that, you know, I wasn't sure was going to be the case because because of like the cultural stigmas in, in like especially East Asian society. Right. And it was really it was really cool to see that, you know, she had people around her who were willing to jump through those hoops, weren't willing to learn what they need to do to support her and her her life. Yeah, yeah. But also just how some of the people at her uh, Chinese-American church, like the aunties there, they would say some uh, backhanded compliments and snide remarks on like, oh, if you're so lucky, like if you were in Asia right now, like you would not be able to get the support that you are getting. And it's like, oh, your your parents must work so hard to... uh, afford you all of these uh, quote-unquote luxuries. Um, Yeah, I mean, shitty aunties is going to be everywhere, you know? (laughs) I was just thinking about that one section in the book where she's talking about church culture Hmm. and how there was a moment where she's called up to the stage by the pastor and they're saying like, oh, through the power of Jesus, make her walk. And I was like, oh, no! (laughs) Oh, no. And uh, just like how she was able to like take a step from her wheelchair. And it's just like, you know, this isn't a miracle. I am able to, you know, move uh, if required at some times because, yeah, I, I was just like, yeah, it's it's unfortunately a thing that happens in uh, Christianity and also just in media in general, like uh, this idea of we need to fix the disabled people and uh, just like kind of like putting them in a narrative of like, look at them persisting, look at them uh, living their life to the fullest despite their disability. And I'm like, Ooh, that's I mean that's it's not as great as people think <laughs> they're they're saying. And you know, she does give that caveat in the beginning of this book, which is this is not that kind of story. This is not a story about persevering. This is not a story about overcoming odds. This is a story about fighting back against those assumptions of how my story should be and advocating on what my life can be right and i think this book does a really good job of getting the reader to challenge themselves as well right and i did love that she didn't dwell on like the story isn't about how she overcame it's about how like this is her life and you know being i i really love the parts where she said like being activist wasn't something that she chose it's something that her life necessitated and you know we we say that again like you know the way that our our experiences intersect with hers is in terms of being asian american in the states and how that constantly puts us in the position of an other and that also necessitates us to be activists for ourselves because we have to fight back against like certain assumptions about who we are based on popular media, based on stereotypes. And for her, that's just one part of what she struggles with because she also struggles with, you know, a more fundamental othering, which is like not being able to do like what quote unquote able-bodied people can do, like walk and breathe. 
there's a piece in the book, I think it's uh, probably somewhere in the middle where she does a questionnaire and they ask her what she's thankful about. And one of the things is she's thankful for being born when she was born because she is living in a time where she can survive and be relatively independent, right? She's dependent on like people to help her, but she is able to make a living using her own skills and talents. Yeah, so... Alice was born in the early 1970s. So uh, she, her parents immigrated to Indianapolis in 1973, and she was born in 1974. She's the eldest uh, daughter, eldest child. And the American Disability Act came out in 1990. So there was this huge period where there was just no government uh, standard on how to make things accessible for disabled people, like buses uh, with like lifts, uh, elevators with horizontal buttons, like that was not a thing. And um, just like, it was like really endearing to, to see how Alice was already an activist when she was like a high schooler, like sending a letter to Time Magazine about how important accessible buses are, how it's like really important for her to uh, have this autonomy because she's living in Indianapolis where it's the suburbs and the only way to get around are like is through her parents driving um, a customized van. And she didn't really have the same experience as... Um, able-bodied teenagers obviously that didn't damper her um ability to enjoy <laughs> life as we can see reading the book she watched a lot of tv and read a lot of books she had a very enriching uh, uh childhood and i did not know that the american disabilities act the ada came out so late in American history. Like literally the ADA is the same age as me, <laughs> which is like so bonkers to me. Yeah. I mean, it came out during during our lifetimes, essentially. And, you know, it does show that the power of policy on real people and especially marginalized people and places where the capitalism fails a lot of marginalized people because they're not seen as worth you know, investing into. And that's when you need government or like policy to step in and like, like close those gaps. Right. And before the ADA, you know, Alice was already like, like you mentioned, Alice was already advocating for herself and for disabled people in like basically everywhere she went, like high school, college, grad school, advocating for accessibility was always a part of her everyday life. And, you know, it's, it puts that in stark contrast with things like, in terms of activists in general, right? Like people tend not to get fired up, like get, get activated until something threatens them or happens to them specifically. And you know, as a disabled person, you are marginalized and you are essentially like oppressed from birth, right? From the, from the very beginning. And so she was activated from the start just because she needed to in order to to like live her life. Um, and I guess jumping ahead a little bit, um, I think that was the most prominent theme I saw from the last few chapters of this book, which is talking about life during the COVID pandemic as a disabled person and how all of a sudden all the things that were too hard to 
to do, like remote working and um, video conferences and events, events like like virtual conferences and events. Yeah, virtual conferences. All of a sudden, like the things that uh, disabled people have been working on for decades is suddenly requesting or like advocating for were being accepted by like companies and corporations you know like she mentioned that like before they would get the excuse that oh no we don't want to take away from the face-to-face um and you know now in like a post um pandemic world or not even post we're still very much in it like the cases just spiked over thanksgiving weekend um you know, Riru and I have been doing this podcast remotely for the last three years now. Has it been three years? It's oh my goodness! While, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We haven't been able to access our studio for a long time. Yeah, and as someone who worked at a bookstore and did like events, pretty much, we had to move entirely to virtual events, and we were able to have all these authors from abroad, even. And it's like, wow, why didn't we do this before? <laughs> and it's and it's just like, wow, the things that uh, disabled uh, people have been like, you know, requesting. It, it's just so easy to grant. And we've just been so embedded in our own prejudices and also just like not even considering how systemic ableism yeah. can be. And now that we're, you know, quote unquote again, going back to normal, we're forgetting all that again. We're forgetting, you know, like I think the whole section uh, about the pandemic was really, you can feel her frustration, um, both in the fact that, you know, all the things that she's been advocating for now is coming so easily just because um, able bodied people are inconvenienced slightly by not being able to go outside whenever they want. Um, but also the fact that even with the increased focus on, you know, public health, Disabled people were still being excluded and forgotten in terms of like distribution of vaccines and even in like this, the rush to like go back to normal and like reopen. Yeah, I mean, at the start of the pandemic, uh, early 2020, uh, Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas, openly said like, oh, yeah, like disabled people should just sacrifice themselves <laughs> Elderly people, immunocompromised people should just sacrifice themselves so the economy can go back to the way it was. It was just like, wow, like this system, this government really, they just see disabled people, immunocompromised people and elderly people as expendable. And it just really makes you question like what we think as a quality life is. Yeah, I think that's that's a theme that runs throughout this book is getting you to reevaluate your assumptions on what equality means and what inclusion means because we talk about things like representation in media. Um, but when we talk about that, we tend to talk about just things along like racial lines. But being able to cast disabled people to play disabled people um, or write disabled stories is also equally important, but it tends to be forgotten because this this like slice, this intersection of um, representation of um, who counts under the umbrella of diversity often does exclude disabled people because those of us who are able-bodied just we don't think about it. And you know, it, it's like it's similar to the way that like let's say more well-off East Asians don't think about anti-black racism. Because it's uncomfortable to think about ways that we 
are also oppressing people when we feel that we're also marginalized. And it's like throughout the book, I did keep thinking to myself, yeah, that's like true equality should needs to encompass everyone. And you know, we're living in a world where you can live as someone with disability. Um, Alice is a prime example of that, someone who has lived, you know, 40 plus years now with disability and has made a life for herself as a writer, as a content creator, and as like an activist and advocate. And I did like the fact that Alice spent time in her book kind of doing the things that, you know, we often say that we shouldn't need to, which is you know, teach people how to be better at inclusion and equality and you know, things like, you know, making sure disabled voices are heard, making sure that you consider disabled people when hiring or when creating things like, you know, something that has been on my mind for a while is how to like include transcription for our podcast. And, you know, a lot of it comes down to just budgeting. Like Rira and I do this um, as a labor of love. We haven't really, you know, tried to monetize that much. And the money that we do make off of Bookshop and, you know, our small merch sales really do go to cover hosting costs for the show. Um, but, you know, if we do get to the point where we're making like a decent amount where we can, you know, either hire someone or, purchase like transcription services, like I'd love to go back and transcribe all of our podcasts so that it is more accessible. And, you know, those are things that, you know, I wish we could do. And it's one thing to think about. It's one other thing to do. And I do hope that one day we'll be able to be able to do that. But um, just little things like that are, you know, similar to, again, like not to bring it back to Asian American activism, even though that is one of the things that um, Alice does and the things that uh, we and I are most familiar with. But like little things like just making sure someone in the room to like voice concern or voice their opinion goes a long way to like create some sort of change, right? Yeah. I mean, I definitely felt called out during the uh, <laughs> podcast chapter. Um, of course, like it's a real, it's really like an ongoing process as an able-bodied person to dismantle my internal ableism and to really, um, think about like accessibility for other people and you know transcription is something that I had thought about for a really long time and I was just like well we don't have the budget or we don't have the time to do it but in retrospect we should have put baked that into our plan <laughs> like <laughs> from the very beginning um, and you know like I am considering like, okay, what is a way where, like, how can we make our podcast more accessible to people who are looking for the type of content that we're producing? Um, and really, like, I had not known about, like, my own prejudices about disabled voices on radio and how there are people who are disabled who are in the podcast spaces, but they're encouraged to... Uh, talk in a certain way, talk in a way that is, quote unquote, pleasing to the ear. And that is a prejudice because it is asking people um, to pretty much mask their accent, mask their, um, <laughs> like if they have like a, a a breathing equipment that helps them speak, like they're automatically considered not pleasing 
to uh, to listen to. Like we come up with excuses of of like, oh, like people can't understand what they're saying. And it's just like, well, maybe they should work harder. Maybe <laughs> like maybe um, there should be closed captions. Maybe there should be text to help people um, listen to radio or consume radio. Um yeah, I mean it's all Yeah, about so this ex- this entire book was just me being me reexamining like okay, <laughs> like how am I ableist? How can I do better? And that's not the purpose of this book, but that is what I gained from it. And I would say that probably is not she wouldn't have added so many like literal tutorials if that wasn't at least part of what she wanted to get across and i did appreciate that it wasn't just one chapter it was like multiple chapters where like a lot of these themes are repeated again and again in different ways throughout the book and things that people can do people things that people should do um and there's no way to read this book without re-examining your own relationship with your ability and confronting how also as like an able-bodied person i realize all of the benefits I get from people who are disabled and have like worked really hard to get like more accessible content. So for example, I listened to this book halfway through audiobooks. <laughs> and audiobooks were initially meant for people who are blind, who can't who have vision impairment. And um I benefited from that. I benefit from watching my movies and TV shows with closed captions. I've always watched things with subtitles, uh, mainly because I am able to understand uh, text better than just listening sometimes. But that's not what closed captions were initially made for. So it's like all all these little things that were meant to make things more accessible for disabled people, I have benefited from it. And I hadn't even considered that <laughs> I was benefiting off of uh, off of their labor. Uh, to me, it's just like, oh, things that make my life a little bit easier. But they're essential tools for disabled people to participate in the arts. So... Yeah, um, I I got a lot of like small revelations throughout the book that way, and I think I think a lot of people that Alice came across in her life also went through those revelations. Like for example, she went to Earlham College, uh, which is like a private university in Indianapolis, and she had uh, to transfer to a local university, Indiana University, because while she was sick and she had to take like a semester off, uh, the number of hours of home care assistance that she could get per day had changed because Indiana had made cuts on Medicaid. And, um, And her new school pretty much had to like figure out, okay, like how do we make an accessible bathroom? And there is literally just one accessible bathroom in the entire campus for for her to use. And same thing with like elevators. Like there are uh, like she's unable to reach the buttons or there aren't like curbs that she can uh, she can go over because of her wheelchair. And these are things that they had to reexamine 
and be like, oh, those are things that we didn't think about. And it's like, of course, <laughs> those are things that you didn't think about. You're an able-bodied person. Like the solution lies in the people who have to grapple with these things. Yeah. And again, it also shows the power of policy on people who rely on public health care to, to go about their daily lives. And- yeah. And I thought it was really interesting reading about her time at uh, UC San Francisco uh, because she was like, it sounded like she was like one of the first disabled students to have, um, uh, like, to live on campus. So they had to come up with creative ways to have housing for her. They're like, okay, well, we have this faculty house that has a garage, like, we'll convert it into an apartment <laughs> and have like an accessible bathroom. Make sure that it's in walking distance of uh, all of your classes. And I'm like, wow, this school really like went the extra miles to make things more accessible for her. And I'm just like, well, they shouldn't like it's impressive, but also it's something that should have been considered from the very beginning. Uh, but unfortunately, it wasn't baked into the plan. And, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is also, I don't think at that point they ever expected someone disabled attending, right? It's the assumptions of what a disabled person can do. It never, it probably never entered their minds that someone would want to go, like someone who needed daily care would want to go to a, you know, a research university, right? Yeah, and also just how academia can be very ableist, very classist. <laughs> uh, just how, like, she talks about when she went for her master's degree for for grad school, she felt like she was so behind uh, everybody else. And, um, and it was just, like, really hard for her because she had to grapple with a lot of uh, health problems at the time. And she just had to take incompletes after incompletes. And it's like, she should have gotten like extra time and extra care and be allowed to take care of her body and also like work on her dissertation without worrying about survival on top of it. You know, like uh, it's already hard to get a PhD. Imagine just, you know, dealing with the constant stress of whether or not your safety net is going to be ripped away from you. It's not the disability that is quote unquote scary. It's the fact that you know, your autonomy will be taken away from you, Um, that the things that that the tools that you need will be taken away from you, like such as the Medicaid hours. Yeah. And that even extends to the small everyday things like drinking liquid drinking boba (laughs) drinking boba Uh, with uh, plastic straws. I mean, she didn't mention the star, but we all know who they were (laughs) that they were advocating for that. Yeah, I mean, they were trying to ban plastic straws, right? That was the thing. And like, it was something that, you know, everyone was like lauding as, oh, such a great move for environmentalism. But totally disregarding that, you know, there's certain people who can't use paper straws. And if you take that away, you're like, it's not even like inconveniencing a whole population of people. It's like disregarding them wholesale, right? Yeah, I have an exact quote from that chapter. Plastic straws are social tools and props, the perfect conversation starter. But one person's social prop is another person's conduit for nutrition. Yeah. So, yeah, like plastic straws were just, 
you know, like for able-bodied people, it's like, oh yeah, like we should cut down on waste. It's like an easy way to do it. This is a cost-effective way to do it without realizing the cost that it takes, the, the cost that disabled people would be taking from it. And yeah. it's really funny how uh, this plastic straws chapter came about, uh, came, was included in this book because I remember uh this was when I became like aware of Alice Wong's work because at the time, like I was seeing a lot of tweets about it uh, and why banning plastic straws would be um, a bad idea, pretty much. Yeah, and why metal straws aren't the solution. <laughs> no, they are. They are not yeah. the uh, solution. And it just like reminded me of how like recycling and just like waste management. That's like we put a lot of blame on the individual telling them like oh you should you know be more eco-friendly with your waste but i'm like how about the companies the corporations like do better in making eco-friendly products and biodegradable things (laughs) why is it the responsibility of us to monitor the uh (laughs) like the destruction of our planet shouldn't shouldn't it be the I, this is this is how capitalism like ruins everything. <laughs> and I did like that in multiple parts of the book, Alice called out that in places where capitalism has failed marginalized communities, disabled communities, uh, the community has come together to support each other through mutual aid, through advocacy, through intersectionality. And I think it made sense to end this book um, talking about the pandemic because the pandemic is kind of like in itself, a microcosm of, like, the disabled struggle. It was smart of Alice to bring back all the things that she's been talking about and explain how it directly affected her life and the life of her disabled colleagues during this, like, global pandemic. Yeah, and towards the end of the book, um, I thought it was so creative on how she had like this imagined dialogue between herself in her like her current self in her 40s uh talking to Alice from when she was like a teen uh just answering questions that a lot of disabled Asian Americans might have and she also has a letter directly to uh to like young Asian American disabled people uh being like hey I got your DMs uh I, I don't have all the answers. I don't want to be a role model uh, because that's, you know, role models are, it's it's a hefty title and they're bound to fail. I'd rather be a fellow troublemaker with you. I'd rather be your peer. And I don't know, it was just like such a creative way to give hope and comfort to uh, people who are struggling with the same struggles that she had when she was a teen, but albeit in different ways, the world is a little bit better. It does not (laughs) feel like it, but it is a little bit better with accessibility. Um, And it it was just like, I don't know, it was uh, the obituary too at the end was uh, pretty funny as well. Like Alice imagining that she passes away at like age 96 had gone to space had done all these things and um yeah it was just it, like it made me smile and be like wow movements movements are always looking for heroes to rally around but really like the work is really done by like everyday people resisting in their own small ways and i think that was a good message to to leave which is you know don't look for people to save you 
you know, we all need to be saving ourselves. And I think that's true in any movement and struggle is, is, you know, it's the individuals have more power than you think. Um, I think that was a good, good message to, to leave behind. And, um, and definitely, you know, like I mentioned, her voice is just, this was a, you know, for, for a book that touches on a lot of uncomfortable um, themes, it was really funny. Alice has a great sense of humor, both about like her, her own disability and also all her observations of the world in general. Um, you know, she isn't afraid to speak her mind. And I definitely appreciated that, like she, you know, as a fellow geek, speaks in references, which is how we talk to each other, you know? Um, yeah, Trek, how she, like, mentions X-Men, that, you know? yeah, X-Men, Teen Titans, being like, oh, I'm a cyborg. And it's like, yeah, like, that's true. <laughs> cyborg in Teen Titans is, you yeah. know, technically a disabled character, but you don't really, but, like, readers don't really see him that way. They see him <laughs> as a superhero. Like a cool and robot I love, man. <laughs> yeah, a cool robot man. And I really liked how Alice... Uh, repeatedly calls herself an oracle in the book. She's like, you're, she's like, society sees me as broken, but I see myself as an oracle who is, you know, powerful and able to do all these things. And I was just like, yeah. Well, yeah, that's also a reference yeah. to Oracle, um, the character in, in the Batman comics who is a I, disabled I know Marvin. <laughs> okay. I too am a geek. So I did get the reference. Um <laughs> Um, so we've talked a lot about her disability activism and advocacy, um, but a large part of this book was also her talking about culture, uh, and not just geek culture, but also you know Chinese culture, her culture. Um, I like that she put a focus on like identifying herself as Shandonese, uh, which is a part of the country. That actually, my my wife's family is from there as well, so it was really fun to read um, the chapter about her Lunar New Year practices because my wife's family does the same thing. They do the uh, money hidden in the dumplings. And for me as like a Southerner, it was actually like, I find it very stressful because when I eat my dumplings, I like to chomp down. And knowing that there is a coin in one of these, I'm like, okay, I actually don't want to pick up the one with the coin in it. I know I'll win money, but also don't want to chomp down on a piece of metal. Um, but it was really fun to see like this cultural specificity in like the way that she also talks about her Chinese culture. Like, what did you think about all those like the the more cultural parts of the book? I mean, I learned a lot because I never knew <laughs> about uh, money dumplings. It's so specific in um, like I wouldn't have known that was like a northern <laughs> Chinese practice. Um I also love the interview that she did with her mom, just like talking about um, just like growing up and passing on traditions. And her mom was like talking about how uh, with red envelopes, uh, how like it's related to like the amount that you get is like related to your relationship with the giver. (laughs) And um, yeah, yeah, it was just it it was just like, wow, like I I was like learning a lot. And um, didn't really know like there were very specific customs uh, that differ from Southerners when it comes to Lunar New Year. Yeah, I think you know when she was talking about how people have different like different amounts of Hongbao money for different people. Um, in my family, and I don't know if this is like a universal Chinese thing, but the amount of money also has to do with like the keeping of accounts between families. So, like for example. Like I receive a hundred dollars from 
my aunt for Chinese New Year. That means that $100 gets passed back to my cousin when he graduates college as a hongbao. That money gets passed back to, you know, my brother as as like his graduation money. And like it's it's a constant keeping of counts between families to make sure you, you never like it's never out of balance. Yeah, um, I don't know if Koreans are that exact in in their accounts between <laughs> their families, but um yeah, definitely the amount that you give is related to your relationship. That is that is the same in Korean culture. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go to weddings in Korea, like your your ticket into the banquet hall is usually like the amount of money that you're giving to the couple. And, you know, it's really funny because all of the weddings that I go to, I always give like an envelope of money. Um, yeah, that's just how Asians the, are, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, like I was really surprised that like uh, non Asians don't do this. They just like put in cards, being like congratulations, and I'm like, what? Like you're not going to give them money? I mean, yeah. weddings are so expensive. <laughs> I mean, for my wedding, we had people like ask what we wanted. Like, do we have a registry? Like, no, we don't have a registry. Just give us money. Like, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> It's, well, it's, that's like the difference between American culture and Asian culture, right? American culture is just like, oh, giving money is like so gauche, you know? Like, you want it to be personalized. You want to give them something that, you know, it's that thought went into it. And it's like, no, money yeah. is the most thoughtful the thing most that thoughtful you can thing. give. <laughs> yeah. Also, just like the etiquette of, like, to me, it's just proper etiquette uh, because they are paying for your food and your drinks. I'm like, well, at the very minimum, I'm going to pay the amount that they spent on me as an individual, (laughs) as a guest. So I always pay at least like $200 to cover the food. I mean, that sounds very generous. uh, (laughs) Which is why I don't go to that many weddings if if i can afford to not go then i don't go and i give them a smaller amount but it's, yeah i feel it's like this money. goes back to the whole like keeping up accounts thing like you never want to feel like you owe someone something right you want to you want to you want to you want to be on you want to be on as much of an even ground with other people like you want to you want to make sure those, those accounts are balanced um but i did love like in true, I guess, Asian American media fashion, that food was a huge part of this book as well. Like lots of recipes, lots of descriptions of food. Yeah, I love the recipes. I love the chuk recipe that she had. Like the the staple of all Asian dishes. <laughs> it doesn't matter which Asian <laughs> culture you come from. There's always some kind of rice porridge. Um, and yeah. of course, like people like people had a lot of time during like the first year of the pandemic like people were learning how to <laughs> how to use their instapots for their very very first time and yeah. um yeah i really enjoyed a lot of the food aspects um i enjoyed one of my favorite parts of the book was like the cat comic about like how to live mm-hmm. like a cat and how that's equal to you know um like taking care of your health and not giving a shit about about like um society pushing on pushing their own boundaries and agendas on you it's just like yeah it's important to take care of yourself and i thought that was like a really cute way to relay that message yeah i i too wish i could live like a cat without oh. any with no fucks given that is oh. like my my goal in life <laughs> that would be that would be amazing 
Just have someone take care of you. Just have the world take care of you or slash not care about what the world does. Actually, um, I, rec- I, I, I correct my previous statement. It's not about like having no fucks to give. It's about setting boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it's really hard to say no sometimes, especially if you are in the activist space. If you are in a marginalized community, you always feel like you have to do more. And people expect you to uh, to do a lot of like work in terms of representing. And it's like sometimes you just got to say no and, you know, pick yourself first and be like, fuck it. I'm just going to be a cat. I'm going <laughs> to live my life and take care of my health first because that is more important than uh, pushing the agenda of of people who are just like, I want to do a check mark on my diversity uh, checklist yeah um yeah yeah this book definitely have a little something for everyone and especially those of us who are able-bodied um to learn more about not only what um alice has to go through as a, as someone with disability but also how we can be better and i think that's something that this book succeeds in is you know it's not talking down it's not there you know we feel called out but that's just because we're shown ways that we could be better. And I think that's that's something that this book accomplishes really, really well. Also, um, the importance of snack breaks. <laughs> Very, <laughs> I love how she emphasized that being yeah. like, like food is very important. Snack taking breaks are is very important, especially when you are an activist. So, I mean, when I do yeah. work, it's actually taking a break from my snacks. So I really related to the procrastination part in in. <laughs> Her book being like procrastination is like my thrill. It's like the the kick that I get because I can't do like motorcycle racing or whatever. And I'm just like, I too am a major procrastinator. And I think that's ma- mainly because um, I have a generalized anxiety disorder. <laughs> and uh, it's just a lot easier for me to procrastinate because I'm just not in the right headspace. So as we get closer to the deadline, I'm like, okay, all of the barriers that I had put up beforehand because of my perfectionism, because of my anxiety, those are all down because now I have to get everything yeah, done. Now you have to do it. Now I have to do it. <laughs> and it's just like, at that point, it's like done is better than perfect. Well, um, any last thoughts about um, Year of the Tiger in activist life? Um. It was very it was a very unexpected read um, because of just like the number of mixed medias, like there were like text messages and transcripts. And uh, it was it was a really informative and entertaining read. Um, I liked how it defied uh, the traditional uh, like disabled person's memoir because there's a lot of those in publishing where it's about like inspiration and and defeating the odds and living life to the fullest and alice was just like this is my life as a disabled person uh it's filled with joy and geek stuff and fulfillment but it's also you know she was very frank about her uh about like medical trauma and uh, you know the hardships that she goes through with uh her her body but it was just told in such a matter of fact way that you know you don't really consider it to be um the typical like arc of a of a disabled <laughs> person's journey and you know i laughed a lot and i learned a lot so i hope uh our listeners will give the book a chance as well 
Yeah, I definitely had a lot of fun reading as well. Um, you know, there are parts that are uncomfortable. There are parts that you will feel a little called out, especially if you're someone who works in spaces where you could be doing better. And I think that's also another thing that I liked is like you can get a sense that like, you know, Alice Wong is someone who for better or worse, is on the top of people's list when they need to talk to someone or have someone talk about disability and diversity and every all those intersections in between. And I'm sure Alice, like many of us who worked in that space, gets tired of it. And so this book, um, and so this book kind of acts as a way for her to point to something whenever people ask her now, which is why I appreciate that she did spend a good portion of the book providing resources for how people can do better and, and be better about um, inclusion in terms of disability. And now there is a resource that she and we can point to when people have questions, right? Yeah. And I loved, I loved a lot of like the, the mottos that she had in the book <laughs> that turned out to be like song lyrics in her <laughs> feature section yeah. where uh, she says ableism is trashed fuck you pay me and shut the fuck up <laughs> white people and i was like oh man my anthem <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's a lot of humorous parts uh, to this book it's you know you would expect it to be all all downers um but but it's not there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of a lot of humor to it yeah well, on that note, I guess that'll do it for our discussion of Year of the Tiger, An Activist's Life by Alice Wong. Um, if you've read the book and have your own thoughts, we'd love to hear them on our Goodreads forums as well. Um, you know, um, our book discussions continue on even after our podcasts are over. So um, definitely, if you have thoughts to share about not only the book, but also our podcast, uh, please let us know. Um, so moving on, this month um, for December, we're actually doing a longer book so we'll actually be discussing the first half in December and the second half in January. So um, it's the first time we've had a two-month read in a while, but it's also one of the longer books that we've selected in a while. So yeah, Rira, what are we reading uh, for December? So for the month of December and January, we will be reading Babel by R.F. Kuang. Um, we're going to discuss the first 12 chapters of in at the end of the month, and then we're going to read the latter half and discuss that in January. Uh, this is our first time doing a format like this. I'm actually really excited because, um, you know, Babel is a very long book. It's like over 500 pages, and I feel like this is a, a better way to make it less daunting. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have oh, to go. um, control myself not to read ahead. Um but I'm excited. I've been looking forward to reading this for a while. Um, I've been a fan of R.F. Kwan's writing ever since The Poppy Wars. So I'm very excited to have the opportunity to read this with everybody. Um, but this book pick does come with a few caveats. So, uh, Mira. Um, yes. Um, so like Marvin said, we've been wanting to read Babel for a very long time, especially since um, it was like first announced. And um, unfortunately, I didn't realize that Babel was published by Harper Voyager, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And right now, HarperCollins is um, having a strike. They their union is having their union has been on strike since the beginning of November. Uh, they are asking for uh, fair wages and better benefits. And um, while they have not asked 
for the boycotting of HarperCollins titles. Um, we just want to let people know that um, R.F. Kwong is a HarperCollins author and she does support the union. She has said it on social media. So I would like to direct people to the HarperCollins union's uh, Twitter and Instagram uh, accounts where there will be links to how to donate to their strike fund, how to support um, those who are in the union and are on the picket line, how to support HarperCollins authors as well. Um, If you can, try to borrow Babbel from libraries um, or like online uh, services like Libby, uh, Hoopla. And um, if you want to buy a physical copy, I strongly recommend going through an independent bookstore or an independent uh, seller. So uh, those are ways you can uh, help the HarperCollins Union. Uh, make sure to, you know, talk about it on your own platforms. It, uh, every every bit helps. But yeah, yeah, I just wanted people to know that Babel <laughs> is a HarperCollins title. I realized it a little bit too late, but this is my way of uh, paying back and uh, contributing. Yeah, and definitely make sure to amplify and support uh, what they're doing out there because these publishers are also many of the people who help us get more diverse books into the world, into our hands. So um, it's important to support uh, and make sure that they're being paid fairly um, in, in, the, in, the, in the industry that is largely kind of famous for underpaying its workers. Uh, so, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, they they are asking for the starting salary to be uh, 50000 <laughs> And to me, I'm like, that's like, that's a given. That is like more than reasonable. I don't understand why. The publisher hasn't already like reached an agreement or even contacted the union. It's been kind of like uh, radio silent uh, since the strike started, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah, um, I mean it's a combination of a lot of things, right? Capitalism, ego, pride, and you know they're asking for just something so basic. And I want to say like the money is probably there. The money's definitely there. It's just it's going to the wrong people. Corporate America to the people is yeah. Corporate America is, is about cutting costs and increasing profits and they view workers as just parts of a machine. So, so yeah, you know, we support the struggle and definitely just wanted everyone to be aware of, of what's going on. And, you know, as always, if you have read Babel and have thoughts about the book, um, please let us know on our Goodreads forums for this month, at least, please keep it to the first 12 chapters. Um, We will read your feedback, but we also don't want to be spoiled. Um, so, so use the spoiler, uh, use the spoiler tag so yeah. that it could, uh, you know, censor the spoilers in your in your reviews. Right, because if, um, sp- if you spoil this for me, I will not forgive you. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also w- would like to direct people to Disability Visibility as a website. It's disabilityvisibilityproject.com. Uh, you'll find Year of the Tiger. Uh, you'll find resources for Year of the Tiger. There's um, a discussion guide. It's very detailed. And there's also a plain language summary of the book. So um, th- those are some extra things that you can uh, find on the website. And uh, I'm sure there's also more events, more more virtual book events on, on this book because it came out in September, I would say. 
So uh, the book tour is still ongoing. So there's uh, there's a way for people to learn more about the book and talk to people in the disabled community about this book. So check out the website. Yeah. Uh, and with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Um, as always, you can support our book club by purchasing um, merch and books on our online stores. Um, you can find them all at booksandboba.com. I think a Books and Boba sweatshirt or a t-shirt would be the perfect holiday gift for um, avid listeners. <laughs> but, but regardless, um, wishing everyone a happy holidays. And yeah, we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, We've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.